Hello and welcome to season two of Something About Science. In this episode, we hop, skip and jump around topics, so you're in for a real treat. We ask, what are blue zones and how could you live to 100? What is Google doing to address transportation and energy greenhouse gas emissions? And how can Bar UV light help to make surfaces pathogen free? And don't forget to listen, subscribe and review all of our podcast episodes on your favourite podcast platform. In today's episode, I really wanted to talk about an article that's recently gone on newsmedical.net, which actually was inspired by a Netflix series, which I think is quite unusual. The series in question is Live to 100, Secrets of Blue Zones, which was recently really popular on Netflix. And I clicked on and saw it on the home screen. I was like, that sounds really interesting. And I had heard of Blue Zones before, but I didn't really know too much about them. So I watched the series and then I commissioned an article exploring the science behind these zones. But what are Blue Zones? So they're regions that defy the boundaries of ageing, living, not just longer lives, but also healthier lives. So yeah, we want to explore the science behind these zones. So like I said, they're characterised by a remarkable concentration of centarians, which are individuals living beyond the age of 100 at rates significantly higher than the global expectations. There are five of these regions and they span from California to Okinawa in Japan. Real-time fact check. Just to bring a fact check on the definition of a blue zone. It's very difficult to determine and a lot of it is not based on scientific evidence because if you're that old, there's no one doing a study when you were like five to check you're eating like yeah. fruits and vegetables. Yeah, that's true. So blue zones are often just self-reported and there's not a particular definition of this makes this place a blue zone. It's just a consistent yeah. fact that people are living over 100. And regarding Okinawa, apparently a lot of the World War II records prior to then had yeah. been destroyed. Yeah. Therefore, it's very difficult to determine are they living longer than yeah. people in the rest of Japan. What distinguishes these zones is not just the genetic makeup of the population, but also their lifestyle habits. And they are sort of categorised into nine different things, and they're called the Power Nine. One of those nine is diet, and, you know, the series explores various different ways in which diet can really impact your lives. Like, for example, there's one of the zones that are in uh, Sardinia and they explore like sourdough bread and then um, when we were watching it I just sort of like got an intense craving for sourdough and they were talking about how like good it is for you because obviously it's like fermented and there's a lot of there's been a lot about fermented foods recently so that was really interesting but also they noted that the consumption of meat was really low in these regions and that actually the consumption of a more plant-based diet with lots of grains and legumes was, was really important. And obviously there's the science behind that as well, which is referenced in the article. But beyond diet, there was many other aspects that were really important as well, and they included physical activity. Physical activity, but physical activity that is incorporated into people's day-to-day lives, not just hitting the gym for two hours a day. And that included doing chores, gardening and walking up a steep hill to visit a local church. I mean, it was that incorporation of, you know, small, manageable chunks of exercise that actually made a big impact in these zones. So numerous studies have highlighted the significance of a purpose in life as well on people's mental health and well-being. And that was something that all five zones had in common as well. In one zone in particular had a, a word in their language for this purpose in life and it was something that they thought about a lot and it was really important to them. So this is something that in the series explores this. 
the presenter of the series sort of basically researched these blue zones and then wanted to replicate what they were doing in a state in the US which was suffering from high levels of obesity, you know, lots of health complications that were lifestyle related. And that's something that he did and he started like this initiative and they managed to, you know, improve the quality of life and the health of the people living in this town in the US, which was amazing. So I think there's several different projects now across the US trying to replicate blue zones. So, and obviously that has huge implications in reducing healthcare costs and improving overall community and well-being. And there's so many different aspects to it because obviously there's diet and exercise, but there's also town planning as well, making sure that, you know, there's pedestrianisation and that people can exercise and access healthy living more easily. So it was so interesting. And um, to learn a bit more about the actual science, which the article goes into more detail with, was really, really, really interesting. So I encourage everyone to go and have a read. What I really like about the kind of the blue zones and I suppose the series and the article obviously it's like you say there's so many different aspects of it and that it's so multifaceted I love it because it's showing that there are so many different components that can I suppose like help with you in your life and say live whether you want to call it a better life or more kind of fulfilled life but then also there are aspects of it that there are changes that you can make yourself and I think it ties into kind of conversations we've had in the past about being mindful about your health and that your health is can be so many different things it's not just your diet it's not just you exercising there are so many different parts of it I like the fact that it's explored all those different things it's not just pinpointing it onto the stereotype of like oh it's the Mediterranean diet or oh it's like a vegan diet it's nice that they cover no actually there are so many different portions of it I really like it it's so multifaceted yeah the fact that it's spread over so many different parts of the world kind of proves that point but um I think the centenarians and the power of nine sounds like like a great fantasy series series that would have many like volumes I feel like this is what Richard Osman needs to do after the Thursday murder club like this is the next thing is you know he's got these old elderly characters that he's really Mm -hmm. like harnessed and they're doing really well the centenarians it's like um superhero series or something like am I saying it right centenarians yeah that's what I said as well cool But interestingly, I've heard that Okinawa is being disputed as a blue zone because there's certain communities that, for various reasons, their health isn't what it once was or they're not expected to live as long as previous generations. Does it have to be the entire region, though? If they're still, like, proportionally? I think this also probably needs a check of how blue zones are worked out. But what I presume is that they'll basically look at the population and, like, it's like statistical it's percent- yeah, or like percentage of it's like if there's so many of the population that is above average yeah. of what the say complete region or the complete country then it's seen as an anomaly i wonder how granular it is like i wonder if it's different in different neighborhoods or in different areas of each city yeah it's a good point actually i think it is quite granular because in the series they're very specific about the community i mean obviously they're referenced to sardinia Mm -hmm. or california but it's not the whole state of california that's a blue zone it's this very specific community and how that community lives so it is quite specific I'm going to have to go watch it. Yeah, it was really good, actually. Quite a nice, easy watch. And I think going back to what you were saying about the accessibility, it's incredibly accessible to watch it and be like, oh, that's a small thing that I could do. Mm. I finished watching it and I was like, oh, I'll take the stairs at work. (laughs) I've done it once. (laughs) 
So this was a study, I think I spoke to Meg about it. I was really excited when I saw it on the Nature Press site. And it was a study that um, examined the relationship between physiological synchrony, audience experiences and personality traits during live classical concerts. So basically, it wanted to understand the interplay between body language and cognitive states, suggesting that often subconsciously people mirror each other's physical and physiological actions, which I thought was really interesting because I think we all know from maybe going to a concert ourselves or a theatre show that you sort of feel as though you're experiencing you know, something together and it's um, a shared experience, but actually it goes deeper and it's actually like a biological occurrence. But basically the study's findings unveiled a close connection between heart rate synchrony and emotional responses, underscoring the impact of music on the listener's immersive experience. That's really interesting. I think it's so fascinating, the impact of music on the brain and to to think that there's also a physiological aspect to that as well is really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And also, I'll talk a bit more about the actual, what the concerts were. So the project, which is called the Experimental Concert Research Project, hosted three classical concerts in Berlin in September 2020. So they used physiological sensors on the audience and video analysis captured movement and reactions during the performances too. Then surveys were conducted after to assess emotional states, personality traits and aesthetic reactions. And that was what the researchers then analysed to come up with the findings that are looked at more deeply in the news piece on News Medical and also the original research paper as well, which is published in Scientific Reports. What an amazing study to be a part of. Yeah, it would be really cool to be one of those audience members, wouldn't it? Come listen to this orchestra. (laughs) Yeah, three times. Three times. (laughs) Isn't it interesting how music can, like, affects people in different ways and that like the behavioral I suppose reactions that people have to certain types of music can differ from person to person I think that's really cool how like people's brains work differently oh we've we've had this come up quite a lot recently because we've been talking about Taylor Swift a lot and people's different opinions (laughs) I'm not doing this again on the podcast (laughs) I'm outnumbered I just had to (laughs) Uh, well I feel like my story is really boring compared to yours now no offense to the research obviously I'm sorry, I have to say I did pick good. You, you, <laughs> pick good. you did pick very good. I went for more technical today. Are you That's proud it. of me? And I was going to do a space one and then I was like, no, I'll change it up. But now I wish I had. But anyway, no disrespect to the stories I'm going to talk about. They're just two short news pieces, really. But I thought both of them were quite interesting. So the first one is an optical device that can make surfaces pathogen free, which I thought was also kind of interesting from a news medical perspective, but this was actually on our azooptics.com site. So in a recent article published in the journal Applied Physics Express, a team of researchers have introduced an approach to combat bacteria and viruses by creating an optical device that can clean surfaces. So they use far ultraviolet light for this, specifically in the 210 to 230 nm wavelength range. That's important for later. (laughs) So this far UV light is really good at eradicating pathogens, but the best part is that it's actually also harmless to human eyes and skin because it doesn't penetrate living tissues. Traditional UV disinfection methods do kind of face challenges. They don't have great efficiency or great lifespans, but with this far UV lights, they took a novel approach by using aluminium nitride, which is a material with a wide band gap, to create an LED emitting UV light at a wavelength of 210 nm, which in itself is quite a remarkable achievement um, to get it to that kind of wavelength. 
But the real magic happens when they introduced a wavelength conversion technology. Okay, this is quite a big word. So by employing a transverse quasi-phase matched structure or a QPM structure, which in, is insert kind of applause fun to say. Here. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> it sounds like very sci-fi, a quasi-phase match. Maybe that can be in structure. the book as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's power seven. <laughs> um, so they managed to amplify the efficiency of the UV light generation quite significantly. So this allowed them to then generate far UV light at 229 nm. And that's really effective at destroying pathogens. So effectively, by employing all these different steps, they managed to get to this point. And they borrowed a lot of the techniques from semiconductor processing as well, which is quite interesting. So anyway, it just kind of signifies a really powerful leap forward in the realm of UV disinfection. And it kind of demonstrates that we can combat germs without compromising human health as well. And I thought it was particularly interesting in a kind of post-COVID world where we're so much more conscious of surface cleanliness and bacteria and viruses and stuff. It was just something I hadn't really thought of or come across before, this idea that, well, I wasn't aware of UV cleaning before. I'm not sure, you might be probably, Danielle, but, but yeah, I thought it was really interesting and it sounds like they've made significant leaps and bounds in, in that, so maybe that's something that we could find in, in hospitals or healthcare settings in the future. Yeah, I definitely think post-pandemic and also, you know, the biggest threat to human health or one of the biggest threats is definitely antimicrobial resistance. Mm. So as, you know, hospital superbugs become more and more um, frequent, this sort of technology will just be so invaluable. So I think that's really interesting research. Definitely. And I wonder if there's also a sustainability aspect of it. If you think about, I know there's quite a lot of efforts for like biodegradable products, but, you know, there's always the argument of like, you've still got to use things to make these biodegradable products mm -hmm. i'd be intrigued to see in terms of kind of like a cost effective and also how much would be needed to achieve like the same level of cleanliness let's call it how many of these kind of physical products versus this did you say it's a uv yeah far uv light far yeah. uv light it would be quite intriguing to kind of compare the two and see which one kind of comes out and stuff yeah, for sure. I think with anything that's quite technologically advanced, it always takes a little while to get to a point where it is cost effective and, and more sustainable. But I mean, think about if you don't have to be using antibacterial sprays or wipes and all that kind of stuff, the amount of waste, like you said, will go down tenfold, if not more. So yeah, yeah that's another really interesting angle with it as well. The other one is another one that I thought that you both might like. Oh, I've go gone on. for kind of a healthcare spin. So maybe that's what's bringing them together a little bit. But it's a magnoelectronic material that can repair nerves. Ooh. Yeah, I thought you'd like this one. <laughs> <laughs> so researchers at Rice University have developed this magnetoelectric material with the potential to revolutionize neurostimulation treatments. So it can convert magnetic fields into electric fields and stimulate neural tissue more effectively than previous materials. So the key challenge in neurostimulation is creating an electric signal that neurons can respond to. Traditional materials generated electric signals that were too fast and uniform for neurons, so there's been a bit of a limitation with this technology. So to address this, the researchers have engineered a new material with a non-linear relationship between the electric and magnetic fields. So they layered platinum, hafnium oxide and zinc oxide on top of the original magnetoelectric material. And this new material, which is less than 200 nanometers thick, can be injected into the body, reducing the invasiveness of neurostimulation procedures as well. So they demonstrated the material's effectiveness by using it to stimulate peripheral nerves in rats, and they restored function in a severed nerve. So this kind of highlights its potential in neuroprosthetics as well. 
So the innovation kind of paves the way for less invasive and more precise neurostimulation treatments. I thought it was really cool. And it can also kind of influence other sectors as well. For example, advanced material design or computing, sensing and electronics as well. Well, I thought you might like it. <laughs> I think anything at the moment, anything neuroscience, you know, as neurodegenerative diseases and other neurological conditions seem to be on the rise. I think it's definitely a big focus in terms of research and healthcare as well. So, mm-hmm. I just love the idea of repairing nerves. Like what? It's almost got quite a visual aspect to it as well. Because I don't know about you guys, but when I think of nerves, like they're all, this sounds so stupid. They always look bigger in my head than obviously they actually are. So I feel like the actual kind of like imagining repairing a nerve you can visualise it quite easily, which is quite cool. I think as well, because obviously it seems impossible that we could really advance treatments because it seems like a bit of a dead end mm-hmm. and only because of what are the limitations of our knowledge and understanding. But it seems like something that is like, well, once something starts going wrong there, once there is some degeneration or some sort of disease, it seems incredibly hard to treat that. So any advances just seem quite incredible. No, definitely. And I think as well, it's almost like it's kept in the back of our minds for a large proportion of your most people's lives. Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but neurodegenerative conditions, is it that they are more likely to affect people who are older? So we kind of don't really think about it, but our nerves and the kind of impact that they have on whether it's our like neurological ability or our ability to kind of move and conduct our daily lives, it obviously it can really hinder just living our best lives really so it's like you say it's quite exciting when advances are made and it could really make a difference in a lot of people's lives Mm. so just for a little bit more detail the neuroengineer in question is called jacob robinson and the magnetoelectric material performs the magnetic to electric conversion 120 times faster than similar materials which is really Ooh, impressive. That is really impressive. Um, and it was a sciatic nerve in the rat model um, mm. that they bridged the gap between. That's very cool. Very cool. So it's um it's just a short one today, guys. But recent research has come out that we recently published on our azolifesciences.com website where evolutionary biologists have, for the first time, decoded the genetic lineage of a famous killer whale and a pod that once worked alongside whale hunters off the coast of New South Wales. Now, the reason I found this interesting is because I didn't even know that this was a thing, that killer whales have previously worked in partnership with whale hunters. So I'll get into a little bit more about that partnership later. But speaking specifically to the research... What was really interesting is that the researchers revealed that Old Tom, which is the leader of this kind of famous killer whale pod, shares ancestral ties with modern killer whales in New Zealand. This discovery was achieved through a lot of kind of research in ancient DNA. Now, Old Tom's genetic lineage has also revealed that it's got shared ancestry, not just with New Zealand, but with killer whales from Australasia, the North Pacific and the North Atlantic Oceans. Now, who is Old Tom and why is it so interesting? Now, this pod of killer whales has famously been known as the Killers of Eden, and Old Tom and his family have played a pivotal role in assisting whalers with their hunts. In return for their aid, they were rewarded with the lips and tongues of the harvested whale carcasses in a practice referred to law of the tongue. Yes, I just thought it was very odd. Um, it seems kind of messed up. Like, it does seem very. It, it, it makes strange. perfect sense once you've watched any documentary about them, though, because the, yeah. 
they're incredibly intelligent, they're incredibly cunning. Mm-hmm. And also that when they do kill a whale, they only eat the, the tongue anyway and discard the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's just the tongue. Yeah. That's, that's the horrible thing about it is that you, you know, when you watch a nature documentary and obviously everything's heightened, you know, dramatic music by mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer is playing in the background. <laughs> and um, they go through this chase and they put this, you know, animal through a lot to hunt it and kill it. And then they only eat the tongue. And like, what I think is interesting is that with killer whales it's a lot of the behaviors can be quite pod specific so i can't remember for the life of me amy could you fact check this for me it's the killer whales that do the the tail flip thing so they, they uh, make a wave and it knocks yeah. the seal off the ice into the into the water so they can more easily it's either the north or the south pole i think it's south the south pole south pole but what's amy's fact checking that so the extensive research endeavour was led by PhD candidate Isabella Reeves at Flinders University and it was carried out in collaboration with the Cetacean Research Centre and a global research team. A lot of the research has relied on, like I said earlier, the application of ancient DNA techniques, which for those of you who kind of don't know, trying to extract ancient DNA from any sort of sample is notoriously difficult and there are quite a lot of different ways and approaches that you do that to basically kind of, I suppose, how would you say, Danielle? But basically, the quality of the DNA degrades. Mm-hmm. So the if you do extract the DNA and you sequence it, the confidence which you can say that this is correct, it decreases over time. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the techniques... I can only suppose what you're trying to say, but the, the techniques try and improve that quality as much as, as, much as possible to, yeah. get, to obtain the best quality DNA as possible. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Real-time fact check. Just to bring the conversation back to killer whales. So the wave wash is um, an orca and killer whale's way to um, dump seals into the water. And the top Google result, unfortunately, is transient orca punts a seal 80 feet into the air, knit Victoria. And I shouldn't laugh. (laughs) It's the use of the verb punt. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I'm not laughing at the situation. I'm laughing at it. It's an unusual use of the word. It is an unusual use of the word. Usually... um, only for Oxford and Cambridge that punt. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. So bringing it back to the news story. So I suppose like some of our listeners out there might be kind of wondering, well, why is this, you know, why is this important? So I'd just like to kind of pull a quote from um, PhD candidate Isabel Reeves. And She's kind of said that the the Killers of Eden, which is this pod that old Tom led, is an, represent a rare partnership between people and whales. And it was an exciting journey to trace the genetic ancestry of old Tom in order to provide the first insights into the genetic history of this particular group. And this particular group has captured the hearts of the community and whale lovers worldwide. So although to others who may not know about it, it may not seem important, but in the community, it's quite I think it's like quite an important kind of research that's been been done. And I think it kind of, if we look more broadly to kind of killer whales, it kind of just adds into that whole fascination of this particular species. And I suppose touches on the broader topic of animal intelligence and how, you know, it's not necessarily a modern sentience. thing. Thank you. Yeah. Animal sentience. And it's not necessarily a modern topic, but these relationships between like humans and animals have been carried on for um, quite a while. I have to have a fun fact about killer whales. Go They're on. actually part of the dolphin family. They're not whales. Also, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, one of my favourite things is the fact that like, you know, when you realise that dolphins and whales basically evolved and like when you look at their genetic lineage and like clustered with 
I might need a fact check on this, but either even or odd toe ungulates off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. They're like little. So like, stuff like, basically ungulates are like divided into two groups, I think. So I can't remember which group they belong to. I might need a bit of a fact check, but it's pos- like things like donkeys. <laughs> Really? I'll leave that with you. <laughs> do, Thanks, Anya. do with that information what you will. Horse, rhinoceros, donkey. So what's this to do with whales? <laughs> I think they're in the same, they're clustered with them, I think. But yeah, they're the biggest members of the dolphin family. Interesting. But yeah, a very random piece of news that I brought you guys today, but still, no, I love it. We've been a bit all over the map today, but I think, I think that's good. It's good. We've got the variety. So the final thing I'm going to end on is a news piece that's recently gone up on isacleantech.com that was actually commissioned by our senior content coordinator, Bethan Davies, and written by one of our freelance writers, Sarah Moore. So how is Google leading the charge in sustainable transportation and energy? Now, according to the UN Secretary General, the planet is nearing the point of no return, which if passed will trigger the irreversible collapse of key components of the Earth's climate. We've all heard a lot of this kind of discourse in media and we all know that a lot of the consequences that have been spoken about are things like unpredictable weather, which some, you know, there are a lot of arguments that this is already happening, a loss of biodiversity and also food and water shortages. Now, we know that many companies are investing in green and sustainable methods to help mitigate these consequences. And one of these companies that has recently come out is Google. So Google hopes to tackle the transportation and energy sector's emissions specifically. And these emissions are a key contributors to global greenhouse gas levels. Now, some of the other initiatives that are around reducing these levels include the use of electric vehicles, the implementation of clean air zones in different cities, which we've had in the UK and London, I believe Birmingham might be another one. And I think Edinburgh is also implementing it. So Google has committed to developing technology to help individuals, organisations and cities make informed choices that will hopefully help to kind of reduce these emissions globally. So some of the key components of this new initiative by Google is one called Project Greenlight. So Project Greenlight is an initiative that leverages artificial intelligence to improve traffic flow at intersections by optimising traffic lights. Now, the reason that this is quite important is because according to recent data, the average wait at traffic light is 18 seconds, which equates to 28 million metric tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions annually, which is insane. So by reducing the number of stops, it can help to make cars at red lights bring down these emissions because they're not waiting as long globally, kind of just reduce these emissions. Now, the Green Light Project is already active in 12 cities across four continents, which I didn't know, which is pretty cool, where a total of around 30 million car journeys will benefit each month from this project. Now, initial data has also predicted that stops at traffic lights will be reduced by up to 30%. And emissions will drop by around 10%. And in 2024, the project will be expanded to many more cities around the globe. Some of the different ways that kind of Google is targeting these specific sectors is that they're also having to reduce the emissions of the energy sector in three ways. So firstly, they're enhancing search experiences so that people can access information on sustainable energy options for the home in a more kind of easier to digest way and they've also introduced a new feature to google earth which is to help cities incorporate solar energy solutions into urban development plans now one thing that i found quite interesting was its target with google targeting the emissions that relate to actually using the platform and search because 
There's been quite a bit of research and kind of predictions and estimates into the amount of emissions or that are actually linked to whether it's an email being sent or whether it's like a search being made. But I think it's not really a topic that's actually spoken about in main media, but it has like quite a significant impact on global greenhouse gas emissions. So even though obviously I feel like with a lot of kind of main or big companies that are making these kind of green and sustainable efforts, to you do have to take them with a pinch of salt to a certain degree. I feel like the discourse around greenwashing has been made and there is validity to those arguments. But I think by specifically targeting these sectors and taking a really kind of niche look at them, there is a chance that it could actually make make a difference. And if a big company like Google's doing it, then it can only be helpful in the long run for like other large organisations to follow suit. Yeah, 100%. You kind of said it yourself, the fact that Google's such an enormous corporation and they're putting these things into place you would hope that others would follow suit and that it would kind of have quite a significant impact Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no definitely it's interesting hearing you talk about the different obviously they've got so many different platforms with google maps google Google earth sorry uh, the, the search console and various other things it's nice that they're thinking across the board rather than just stopping it saying oh you know we've made it easy for people to find information no, definitely. And like one thing I like is that they're not only focusing externally, they're focusing internally, mm-hmm. such as to the different platforms that you've mentioned. It, it's just it can only be good if you're, you know, trying to make changes outwardly, such as the Project Greenlight, but also making changes internally, because to put it plainly, you can make so many donations to something. But if you yourself don't make internal changes, then no one's going to come in and make the change yourself on your company do you know what I mean I feel like it's a really bad metaphor you can cut that out (laughs) Um, I'm with you yeah so yeah it's just taking more like proactive changes really and um, it seems to be quite an exciting area that hopefully will you know will continue to develop and will as it becomes more implemented across the world actually make a difference Okay, well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening to Something About Science. And don't forget to check out the content discussed as all links are in the description. And that's all from me, Skylar, and also Megan and Danielle. And we'll see you next time.